So this is what I read. The nightmare terror of the slithering eye that unleashed agonizing terror on a screaming world. A man dissolves. And out of the oozing mist comes the hungry eye, slave to the demon brain. Yes, I read that. I read that on a movie poster for a film called The Crawling Eye. And if that wasn't enough, the poster comes with a warning. It says if you've ever been hypnotized, do not come alone. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Two dollars multipass. You're stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time. Listen. I'm going to begin with a little story. It happened around 1990 or 91. I was up one morning flipping through the channels on TV. This was in the early days of cable, long before streaming. We had a package that got about 25 channels or so. And like I said, I was sitting on the couch flipping through program after program when I stopped on the comedy channel. At the time, we had two channels for comedy, the comedy channel and Ha! About a year later, the two would merge into Comedy Central. Anyway, they were showing an old movie. I can't remember now what movie it was. Then I noticed these little silhouettes at the bottom of the screen. The middle one seemed human, but what the heck were the other two? I asked myself, are they talking during the movie? What is this? Seriously, I had no idea. And it took me a while to realize that they were making jokes. When my wife woke, I asked her, have you seen this? They're watching the movie and talking about it. But it wasn't long before I was hooked, and every Saturday morning, if I remember it correctly, at 10 a.m., I'd watch Mystery Science Theater 3000. I even began recording them all on VHS tape. I still have those tapes today, and they're free to anybody who wants them. Just send me money for shipping. Well, hello there. Welcome to the fourth episode of Celluloid Days, a podcast of film and film history. This is the fourth Friday of the month, and that means I'm going to talk about a film that has been riffed on Mystery Science Theater 3000 or one of its related shows. On this episode, I'm going to talk about the film The Crawling Eye from 1958. For those outside the U.S., it's known as The Trollenberg Terror. It was the first film riffed on Mystery Science Theater 3000 when it began on the Comedy Channel. And there will be spoilers, but this film is more than 60 years old, so if you have a complaint, all I can say is, seriously? Besides, both the rift and the original are available on YouTube and Amazon Prime, so if you haven't seen it, stop listening, watch the film, and return to the show. That's the most important part, folks, to return to the show. So, a quick review of the film. The Trollenberg Terror is a British science fiction horror film that was released on October 7, 1958. It would be released on December 31st of that same year in the U.S. as The Crawling Eye, but with 11 minutes cut. 
The problem with the U.S. title is, well, it gives away the end. I mean, the way the film is constructed, the terror is supposed to be a surprise. But I guess, however, that fits in with the film titles of the time. You know, the same year we had Attack of the 50-Foot Woman, The Blob, The Fly, It, The Terror from Beyond Space, and Monster on Campus. The movie is based on a 1956 British ITV Saturday serial television program. According to IMDb, none of the six episodes are known to exist. The original serial was written by George F. Kerr, Jack Cross, and Gills Cooper under the collective pseudonym Peter Keyes. It was directed by Quentin Lawrence, who also directed the film version. Lawrence directed a lot of British TV starting in 1955 and kept going until his death in 1979. He died young at 58, but I couldn't figure out the reason for his death. Now, the reason why we are able to enjoy crazy sci-fi and horror films is due to suspension of disbelief, the ability we as humans have to intentionally avoid critical thinking or logic while watching the film. But when you see a creature such as the one in this film with a crawling eye, well, it's just not possible. And I think it's worse for modern audiences, as they are getting used to some amazing special effects. I was looking at reviews on Rotten Tomatoes, and most people really hate this movie, or they like it because it's so bad it's good type thing. I found one review by Justin W., who gave it 4 out of 5 stars, and he wrote, Honestly, I was surprised here. It's really not that bad. The effects are laughable now, but back then, they were probably somewhat impressive. Um, I'm not so sure about that, Justin. I don't think these effects were all that impressive, ever. My gut feeling is, and, and I wasn't alive back in 1958, but I'm guessing they were just as laughable then as they are now. You know, I often have this thought, especially when watching the old Doctor Who episodes, you know, from Tom Baker and before. I imagine the writer, in his mind, imagining a horrible, gruesome monster, one that would give the audiences bad dreams once the show is over. In his head, he knows exactly what this monster should look like. And then on shooting day, he walks onto the set and sees the actual monster they are using. And his heart sinks. I imagine a defeated sigh, a slow 180-degree turn, and a shuffling walk towards the door. I imagine it for this film as well. The effects are cheesy as the cheesiest Doctor Who episode, and it's you, Les Bowie, that is responsible. Well, you and probably a minuscule budget. In Bowie's defense, he went on to work on films like Dracula A.D. 1972, When Dinosaurs Ruled the Earth, Star Wars Episode IV, A New Hope, and Superman. It looks like he did a lot of work as a matte painter. Now the film begins with three student climbers on a Swiss mountain who meet with tragedy as one of the three has his head ripped from his body, and it wasn't an accident. A U.N. troubleshooter named Alan Brooks, played by Forrest Tucker, is sent to investigate, and he had been involved in a similar accident years before. On the train ride, just before he arrives in Trollenberg, he meets two sisters, Sarah and Anne Pilgrim, played by Jennifer Jane and Janet Monroe. They have a mind-reading act and are on their way to Geneva. 
Suddenly, Anne passes out onto Brooks's lap, and after awakening and given a shot of booze from Alan Brooks, has a sudden desire to get off at Trollenberg. Next, Trollenberg. Trollenberg? Sarah, we're getting off at Trollenberg. That's my stop. What's the matter, Anne? You know we have to go on to... No, I really can't go any further today. We can stop at the Hotel Europa. Hotel Europa? We've never been to this place. How do you know about the Hotel Europa? Now, at Trollenberg, there's an observatory where Alan Brooks meets Professor Cravat, played by Warren Mitchell. He's a German-accented professor who is an old friend of Brooks, and he knows that something is up. Well, to make a long story short, Anne Pilgrim is a real psychic and begins seeing people die just before they actually die. And the monster apparently knows this and considers her some sort of threat to whatever plan the monster has. To get her, the creature takes over the mind of a man named Brett, who uses a pickaxe on a couple of his friends, and then attempts to strangle the young lady. There's also a reporter at the mountain resort named Philip who helps out here and there, I guess. The bottom line is, there is a giant eye creature with many tentacles who lives in a radioactive cloud or mist. It eventually attacks, and a huge battle ensues with our heroes using Molotov cattails. It ends with an aerial firebombing assault, but all the good people live because they were in an observatory which was created with fireproof reinforced concrete. Oh, there's a little bit more to the story here and there, but I think you get the gist of it. Now, I've got nothing against Forrest Tucker, and he isn't all that bad in the film. I mean, he does the job, and his acting talents are, well, the least of the film's problems. I've always liked Jennifer Jane, and she's probably the best part of the film. She was a British actress who did a lot of television. She was also in the film They Came From Beyond Space in 1967. I was unfamiliar with the lady who played her sister, Janet Monroe. I probably should have known her, as she was in films like Disney's Darby O'Gill and the Little People, Swiss Family Robinson, and the British science fiction disaster film The Day the Earth Caught Fire from 1961. Sadly, she died at the young age of 38 from a heart attack. Professor Crevet is played by Warren Mitchell. This character, complete with a German accent, is almost a sitcom character. Professor... How many more times do I tell you I am not to be interrupted? I'm sorry, sir, but there's someone outside to see you. I don't care. Tell him to go away. He's the type of character one would write if they were trying to do a parody of a mad scientist. I'm surprised his hair wasn't all messed up. Now, he's a friend of Alan Brooks, and he's the one who tries to convince him that something evil is going on. He's sort of Dr. Exposition. And then there's Lawrence Payne, who plays Philip Truscott, the handsome reporter. I think he's only there to be Janet Monroe's love interest, though there really isn't much of a romance in the film, though they do seem to get together in the end. You know, the problem with this film isn't the acting, nor the script. I mean, it's no worse than most of the cheesy 50s sci-fi flicks. I mean, it's not good, but it's serviceable. The problem is the special effects. They are just so horribly bad. I can almost forgive those types of special effects in a TV show, but not in a movie. You know, there's nothing worse than seeing a building burn when the set is clearly a miniature. Because you can't scale fire. 
Fire and water are the two worst things to use with miniatures. And the eye creature, well, it's not good. I hate to keep bringing up Doctor Who, and this will be the last time, but it's even shot like an old Doctor Who show. Maybe that's because it started out as a TV show, so the effects and camera work just carry over. And the director was a TV director, so... And for you Doctor Who fans, remember the power of Kroll with Tom Baker? The effects are pretty much the same. Strangely, I don't think the film needed the eye creature. I thought it had the makings of a halfway decent low-budget sci-fi film with some good characters and eerie atmosphere. The Beast could have easily been a Bigfoot or something. A human in a costume would have worked fine. Look, we don't see the eye thing until over an hour into the movie, and then it's laughable and takes you right out of any real suspense. In the film, The Thing from Another World, we don't see James Arness as the thing until near the end, and his costume is almost nothing, but it works really well. Now, I wish I had some more trivia, you know, behind-the-scenes information for this film and all that, but I just can't find anything. It's pretty frustrating, as there were many blogs about the Trollenberg Terror and the Crawling Eye, but most of them are just a short synopsis of the plot, the cast and crew, date of release, running time, that sort of thing. There are some longer ones with detailed reviews, but no real information that I could use. So I guess, in a way, I'm doing the same thing as well. In the not-too-distant future, next Sunday, AD. So on November 25th, 1989, the film The Crawling Eye was given the MST3K treatment by Joel and the Bots. And this is definitely the U.S. version of the film, because it's a bit shorter than the original British film. Now, since this was the first season, it featured J. Elvis Weinstein as Dr. Lawrence Earhart. J. Elvis was also the puppeteer and voice of Tom Servo. Now, I must admit, I was never a big fan of Dr. Earhart. I think that J. Elvis, or Josh as he was known back then, is a real funny guy. He was great as part of Cinematic Titanic. It's just his character I didn't like all that much. Part of it might have been that I came into the show during its second season, where TV's Frank was the other mad. But to me, Earhart was a mean, nasty, unlikable character with a high, whiny, irritating voice. While Frank Conniff played the goofy, buffoon sidekick, which was a great contrast to the evil Dr. Clayton Forrester. Dr. Clayton Forrester, of course, was played by Trace Bellew, and he's wonderful. Yet in this first episode, he's sort of stiff. I think he was still developing his character and hadn't quite got there. There's that fly on, silver bird, Simon and Garfunkel reference as he sticks Earhart in the butt with a needle, and that was good for a laugh. And I was amused by the fact that you can see both J. Elvis and Trace having their long hair tied behind the back of their heads. And of course, the host of the show was creator Joel Hodgson as Joel Robinson. Like the rest, he's still finding his way, but he does a pretty good job. Of course, Joel seems to pretty much be playing himself, so I guess that helps. Trace also plays Crow T. Robot, and the show's producer, Jim Mellon, makes his first appearance as Gypsy. For the invention exchange, Joel has his electric bagpipes. That's a bagpipe hooked up to a leaf blower, which works really well. And the Mads have a serum to stop people from sweating. 
so they would be more like a dog, and I didn't find that very funny. I did like Joel and the Bots doing Led Zeppelin's whole lot of love with the bagpipe. Racket. She's got a whole lot of love. What, what a whole, whole lot, lot of love. She's she got, got a whole, whole lot, lot of love. A really whole lot of love. Before the film starts, the Mads explain that they had moved down to the sub-basement to what they call Deep 13. As far as I know, that was the only reference to the KTMA episodes. The Mads set looks nice, but the main set of The Satellite of Love is very simple and sparse, as it would be for most of the first season. The problem is they just didn't have time to build a decent set. They didn't even have time to build the buttons for Joel to hit when there's movie sign, so comically he just slaps the table. When they introduce the film to us, Earhart says, Oh, it's, it's got a bad audio track, it's in black and white, and worst of all, it stars Forrest Tucker. Hmm, good name, bad actor. <laughs> I'll put in the tape. To nitpick a little, the bad audio track is just their print. In fact, that happens a lot on Mystery Science Theater. They have a bad copy of the film, which adds to the comedy, and there's nothing wrong with black and white. And, in my humble opinion, Forrest Tucker is not a bad actor. I mean, he's no Laurence Olivier. He was never in danger of winning an Academy Award, but he's all right in some of his earlier films. And he's perfectly fine in The Crawling Eye. This, of course, was late in his career, and Forrest allegedly did have a bit of a drinking problem. Now, I'm sure that anybody who's my age might remember him from the politically incorrect F-Troop. Like I said, it's the first show, and the gang was still finding their way. There are many moments during the riffing where they just don't say anything. Long breaks in between jokes. The thing is, back when they were at KTMA, nothing was scripted. I just recently watched the first KTMA episode, and the film starts out with Joel by himself, no bots, and I don't think he says anything for the first five minutes or so. It's just the movie. When they moved to the Comedy Channel, as it was called back then, they began to script the show, but they didn't know how to pace it, so the jokes are not as rapid-fire as they would be in later seasons. In some ways, I like that because I like to watch the films as well, and in this format, you can enjoy the cheesy film and still get a good dose of jokes. The riffs early on in this episode are not all that laugh-out-loud funny. Amusing, but not hysterical. Some seem more like comments rather than jokes. In some of the later shows, I can still watch them and laugh out loud, but I don't remember laughing out loud once while I watched this film. At one point, Joel does his voice on the other end of the phone bit, but in this version, it's really hard to make out just what he's saying. One of the jokes I liked was when Crow says, Two superpowers will unite to fight a third. Stop it. Two brothers will reach the Senate. One will become president. Both will die. Shh. Hush. Any poking of fun at Nostradamus makes me laugh. And Joel has the line, I mean, I don't get this. What's a giant eye going to do to you anyway? Like pick you up and wink you to death? It's just not going to happen. It's not practical. Now, one big difference between the Joel episodes and the Mike episodes was that while Mike was just a goof like the bots, Joel was more like a parent figure. In the first break in the show, we see the bots asking Joel, what's so bad about having your head ripped off? 
They are confused as Crow explains that he's seen Tom Servo's head on the workbench many times. It's an amusing bit as Joel talks to them as if he was a parent talking to kids about how humans cannot have their heads ripped off. And at the end of the show, Joel asks the bots to say something good and something bad about the film in exchange for a RAM chip. Crow says the good thing was that it wasn't longer, and the bad thing was it was this long. For Tom Servo, the good thing was they didn't have to watch them clean up the vitreous humor all over from the exploding eye, and the bad thing, it was ambitious but lacked vision. And Gypsy could only say Richard Baseheart. I'm not sure when they stopped doing the ram chip at the end bit. Was it before the end of season one? I'll have to look into that. All in all, this wasn't one of their funniest episodes, but still I enjoyed it. I mean, it's amusing, just not hysterically funny. It's the show's humble beginnings, and you have to start somewhere. You know, next time I do this, it'll be for one of the shows I find extremely funny. So next month, on the fourth Friday, I will talk about the film Werewolf, or the Arizona Werewolf as it was originally titled. It's one of the Mike episodes, the fourth show of the ninth season, and I hope you will join me. Somewhere under this parched desert, a secret lies buried. Hey, I got something here. Do you believe in werewolves? No. What the hell? It could be the discovery of the century. There's some weird things happening around here. I want to know what happened. When the rising moon fans the flames of desire, the beast emerges, and no one is safe. Can you keep a secret? Werewolf. So after my last week's episode on Oz, or 20th Century Oz, the director of the film, Chris Levine, posted a little thank you for reviewing his film on my Facebook page. That was very nice of Chris. And thank you, Russell, for letting Chris know that I reviewed his film. So next week, I'll be back to film history as it'll be the first Friday of the month. I'll be talking about the French artist and inventor, Louis Le Prince. He's the man that made the first known motion picture. It's known as the Round Hay Garden Scene, and it's just a little under two seconds long. The thing about Le Prince, he mysteriously disappeared on September 16, 1890. Some people think Thomas Edison was involved. We'll find out. I hope you'll join me. Last week, we had a record amount of listeners. I'm not quite up to Adam Carolla or Joel Rogan numbers, but hey, we're getting there. I'm always looking for film suggestions. If you've got a suggestion, send me a message at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com. Coffee with Jeff is all one word. I also have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page, a Coffee with Jeff Twitter page, and even a website. Why Coffee with Jeff? Well, that was the name of the old podcast, and I'm too lazy to set up new accounts. And one last thing before I go. If you could leave me a review, hopefully a good one, 
Wherever you download this podcast, I'll be forever grateful. Thank you all for listening. I'll be back next Friday. Bye-bye. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. The Dallas multipass. You're stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time.